This season of Invisible Capital is presented by Sapphire Ventures, a leading global B2B software-focused venture capital firm partnering with visionary teams building companies of consequence. As enterprise software specialists, Sapphire knows the challenges that high-growth B2B companies face when scaling from expansion stage to IPO. Sapphire partner and revenue excellence leader Curran Singh specializes in helping companies architect an efficient revenue engine that unlocks their ability to scale effectively. Stay tuned after today's episode to listen to the Sapphire series Game Changers, a show where Curran dives deep with the best revenue leaders in the industry on how they've transformed their company's growth trajectories. Head to sapphireventures.com to learn more about Sapphire's team of investors, portfolio growth advisors, and investment strategies, plus best practices and resources available from B2B industry experts. And we believe it's a moral good that you can reduce human suffering by inventing uh, and investing in technologies that can deter war. And, and yeah, increasingly, you're seeing people, not only investors, but more importantly, investors are looking at the signal of where smart people want to go. And smart people increasingly don't want to just, you know, work at Facebook reinventing, you know, ads or working on Google for search. They want to work on really important mission critical stuff. And when you see a revanchist Russia or uh, uh, increasingly bellicose China, uh, particularly the CCP, I think people see that there's a long-term mission calling here and, and it's inspiring a lot of folks. Hello, and welcome to Invisible Capital, a podcast on the private markets. I'm Alexander Davis, Editor-in-Chief of PitchBook News. Today, PitchBook financial writer Marina Temkin interviews Josh Wolf, co-founder and managing partner of Lux Capital. Their conversation ranges from bleeding-edge technologies to the recently passed Inflation Reduction and Chips Acts. But first, I'm happy to welcome PitchBook Analyst of Fund Strategies and Sustainable Investing, Annika Viegas, back to the show to talk about the latest PitchBook Sustainable Investment Survey. Before we dive into the interesting takeaways, just start out maybe by giving the listeners a little background on the survey and the report that we just published. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me, Alec. So this survey really allows industry participants to get a sense of trends and private market participant perspectives, priorities, and practices around ESG and impact investing. So our respondents include GPs, LPs, and other service providers from across the globe. And interest and awareness of sustainable investing has really skyrocketed in recent years. We hit a new record in responses this year with over 550 completions of the survey, which we're really happy about. Yeah, that's a that's a remarkable uh, engagement, I think, um, after you know three years of doing the survey. What kind of uh, interesting new developments did you uncover in this year's survey? Yeah, so one of the major trends that we identified in the survey was the politicization of ESG. Survey responses really reflected a polarization in views of the sustainable investing space in recent years. So while trends in the data may make it look like there's been an industry shift to a more negative view of ESG, we actually believe that this is more likely due to more respondents responding in order to have their negative views registered. With that being said, though, there were some noteworthy numbers that came from the survey. So in 2021, uh, only 9% of respondents said that they have no plans to incorporate any sustainable investment work. And that number actually jumped to 13% this year. 
And when allocators were asked if they evaluate a fund manager's implementation of an ESG risk factor framework as part of their due diligence process, 22% said they have no plans to do so. And that's up from 15% last year. And in our open-ended responses, there was a stark increase in negative sentiment. In 2020, one person felt the need to register extremely negative views on the topic. And this year, there were roughly 50 such responses. However, it's important to note that in the context of overall responses, those with a negative sentiment are still in the minority. And what is that negative sentiment about in a nutshell? I mean, I'm sure there are, there's a variety of perspectives about it, but what's the, what's the typical naysayer or uh, you know, negative voice trying to respond to? Generally speaking, there was a lot of vitriolic and highly politicized language. Uh, with that being said, there are some more legitimate critiques or concerns, uh, predominantly around the fact that ESG might constitute a breach of fiduciary duty. Now, there are others in the EU who would hear that and laugh and say, in fact, not utilizing an ESG risk factor framework would more likely constitute a breach of fiduciary duty. But that is one of the main concerns around ESG. With that being said, a lot of the more extreme responses we had were to the effect of uh, this woke agenda should not be integrated into the financial markets and into the private markets, uh, and really was more focused on the idea of ESG as uh, a leftist tool to integrate wokeness into mm -hmm. the financial markets. So I think that that's more where the concern is coming from in the more extreme responses. Really interesting. Anything else that stood out from the responses that you can share with us? Yeah. So it might not be surprising that the negative sentiment was really concentrated among North American respondents, but it was also predominantly coming from North American LPs, which we thought was interesting. So we think that this is largely because of the social and political commentary that's occurring in the U.S. Um, as I mentioned, concerns around potential utilization of ESG as a breach of fiduciary duty. And then in terms of prioritization across the E, S, and G, every client type and geography tends to prioritize environmental first and social second. And then there's some interchangeability between governance and returns third. Again, with that being said, based on some of the responses in the survey, it's apparent that there's still some kind of confusion and misconceptions around what it means to actually, quote unquote, do ESG and what ESG means. So beyond misunderstanding of definitions, as we've actually previously discussed on the podcast, there are different philosophies on how to implement ESG. So in the survey this year, we saw that there was a concentration of respondents who, when looking to fill a portfolio using an ESG framework, seek to create a totally clean portfolio from the get-go. Uh, but there were also a concentration of respondents, and particularly LP respondents, who create more of a needs ESG improvement portfolio with the goal of making those improvements during the holding period. So Annika, looking ahead, what's coming down the pike for you and your teammates on the uh, fund strategies and sustainable investing unit? Yeah, so we've been increasing our coverage of sustainable investment in recent years, and we really hope to continue to do more of that in 2023. I recently published a piece called ESG and Impact in Private Market Real Estate, which zooms in on the material ESG risks and sustainable investing opportunities in that asset class, as well as delves a little bit deeper into how to actually mitigate those risks or capitalize on those opportunities. 
So one of our goals is to put out more industry or asset class level research of that kind in 2023, taking more advantage of the ESG and impact related data that we do have on the platform. All right. Well, that's Annika Viegas uh, joining us today. Thanks so much. Great speaking with you again. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Alec. To download the report on the 2022 Sustainable Investment Survey, visit pitchbook.com slash podcast. After the break, we'll hear Marina Temkin's conversation with Josh Wolf of Lux Capital. Stay tuned after today's interview to hear the latest episode of Sapphire Ventures series Game Changers, where Sapphire partner and head of revenue excellence Curran Singh connects with the best revenue leaders in the industry about how they've transformed their company's growth trajectories. You know me, I'm an operator at heart, so I don't think any strategy can actually turn into a plan, into execution until you start talking about KPIs. You start talking about the targets against those KPIs, so effectively... How are you measuring success? The first real indicator is is alignment and how many people that you're meeting with actually are speaking the same language that you're speaking when they're talking about segmentation and at least have the same general knowledge and the same general framework that we're all operating off. The next thing that we did, the next KPI that we focused on was product adoption of this. So the more we felt that we could get product understanding the common needs and understanding the prioritization of the common needs and getting that into the product roadmap, we felt like that we could then more appropriately start to bring the rest of the organization around to where the product was going. Hi, Josh. Welcome to Invisible Capital Podcast. Very excited to have you. Lux is a very known venture firm, and many of our listeners are probably familiar with Lux. But for those who are not, please tell us about your firm and what differentiates you from what has become an increasingly crowded VC investment space. Uh, Lux today is $4 billion AUM. We're half New York, half Menlo Park, and everybody's a generalist, but we focus on really cutting-edge things. We always say that the gap between science fiction and science fact is uh, always shrinking. And about a third of what we do is in pretty cutting edge things in energy and materials, physics, industrial automation. But another third is in healthcare. And that's everything from healthcare IT to biotech to med devices and robotic surgery, uh, all promised on breakthroughs in, uh, in, in biology and biochemistry and where that intersects with computer science at times and increasingly AI and ML. And then the final third is what we call core technology, which is more defined by what we don't do, which means we tend to avoid things that are overcrowded, very competitive, uh, things where we find that there's little technological differentiation, often driven more by marketing or by luck. And those are things like internet, social media, mobile, ad tech, video games, things that historically a lot of IT investors have gone into. For us, core tech is really these cutting edge areas. It could be brain machine interfaces, it could be autonomous systems, it could be defense, it could be space. But it's things that, again, sort of feel like they're coming out of science fiction that might have inspired some of the engineers, scientists, uh, entrepreneurs, inventors that we, we back. Uh, about a quarter of what we do are actually de novo companies. So we will start them from scratch, either with a founder, a principal investigator, a scientist, or start them from scratch. A partner might have a thesis. And uh, about a, a third of uh, what we do being thesis driven is looking at what everybody else is talking about and then often using that as a counter signal to figure out, okay, where's the white space? You know, what is nobody looking at? And uh, we love starting new co's and that's sort of zero to one phenomenon. Another third of what we do are people driven investments. And as the Lux portfolio grows, you get to 
tap into the cadre of entrepreneurs that are inside of a company and they might have vested, they might have contributed a lot of value. And then they're thinking, you know, hey, I've learned a lot here and I want to have a partner of choice. And ideally, we're their first call as they go and leave one company and start another. We call it the Lux family and it keeps growing. And then the other style that we really like, and unfortunately, or fortunately, for the past decade, there's been very few of these situations are special situations. And special situations are how do you invest in a late stage business, but in an early stage price, which means something has happened that has impaired the cap table or the capitalization of the company, not necessarily the fundamentals or the balance sheet or the income statement or cash flow, but the investors. The investors are overextended. Maybe they're under-reserved as VCs. And there's an opportunity for us to come in at a lower price than what the market might be bearing. So that is uh, us in a nutshell. And uh, we you know, really love the intersection of all these crazy disciplines. And when we invest in a company, we uh, call it Unum Lux, which means you get the entirety of the entire Lux team, which includes all the investment partners, not just one that might be the core sponsor, uh, our marketing function, our financial functions, our operations, our legal, but anything that we can do to help a company reduce risks. Right. Why, why is now a good time to invest in all those things that are so futuristic? And um, the reason I'm asking the question, because over the last few years, there was so much capital in uh, the venture capital markets. And you know that if you invest in something, there will be more and more capital. You had all this crossover investors ready to invest a lot of capital to make this technological things going, like, for instance, quantum computing that are very capital intensive. What is going to happen now to products and technologies that are very capital intensive? Are they going to get funded? And what are your thoughts? Uh, so it's always a good time to be investing in the future because there's always some entrepreneur that looks at something and identifies it and says, that sucks. I want to make something better. And that's been the history of the world, whether capital is abundant and cheap or capital is expensive and scarce. When capital is abundant, you have lots and lots of experiments that are getting tried, whether they're capital efficient or not. More money's going out the door. More entrepreneurs are starting companies, oftentimes us being social primates and humans, we see somebody that you don't necessarily respect as much. And you say, my gosh, if she or he just raised so much money, I can go out and do the same thing. And so you get copycat effects of people saying, you know, I can do a better job of that. An investor might have missed, you know, company X, so they invest in company Y. Uh, all that just sort of cascades. And you get these bubble-like phenomenons when diversity amongst investors, growth and value and momentum and uh, all break down. People leave big corporate jobs and you you just get everybody going into starting new companies and funding them. And you go from the this phenomenon of patient uh, uh, analytical review of companies to FOMO, fear of missing out. The inverse when capital is scarce is that uh, everybody is suddenly scared. People don't want to be suckered. People don't want to lose money. Maybe they lost money already and they're suddenly gun shy. And so there's this phenomenon that that changes that um, people uh, you know, are suddenly uh, uh, raining in their wallets. If you have a portfolio, you may not be too quick to raise your next fund. You might have to increase the reserves of your current fund to support your existing companies. More companies might have flat rounds. They might have down rounds. They might have syndicates that are weak. They might have to make up for an investor that can invest or is choosing to triage a portfolio and their best company might not be your best company. Our worst company might be somebody else's best company. We might decide, you know what, we have to find an off-ramp and a nice home for this company, but uh, we're going to help it find an acquisition, find uh, help help the talent find new jobs, but we're not going to continue to fund it. And somebody else might say, oh, this is the most important company in our portfolio. So you get those sort of inter-fund conflicts that lead to a little bit of this uh, interim chaos. In terms of capital intensivity, 
the best companies will always be able to raise capital, whether you are developing a pharmaceutical drug and you have to go through clinical trials, uh, you know, that takes upwards of a billion dollars as a biotech company. If you are a cutting edge defense company like Anduril, where you are raising hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, to have both a war chest balance sheet, but be able to develop technologies that are of critical importance to men and women on the front lines globally for US and our allies. I actually think that it is a great time if you are a super capital intensive business, if you have an N of one company, meaning if you have a moat and you have some competitive advantage technologically, if you have some secret that you figured out about a market, then it's okay to raise a lot of money. In fact, in this current market, one of the strategies that we have, we call it the the bubble, the anti-bubble and consolidation. The bubble means let's raise enough money for certain new co's that can be relatively inoculated, in, immune, in a bubble, protective bubble, not a speculative bubble, but protective bubble from whatever might happen in the macro, geopolitically, whatever might happen domestically with resurgence of Trump and political chaos or who knows, just protect them. The anti-bubble is what I was describing before about the special situations, which is bubble has popped, great companies, now at not so great prices, you know, for prior investors, but great for new investors. And um, you can, you know, invest in late stage businesses or early stage prices. But the consolidation piece is the, is the last one, which is it, it almost requires capital intensivity. You want people that have hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billion plus of, of cash on their balance sheet. That allows them to do two things. It allows them to spend some of that cash on acquisitions and consolidate and rationalize the industry as other people who are cash poor are looking for exits and, and lifeboats. It also allows, presumably, if you've raised billions of dollars plus, you have a reasonably fair stock currency to use. Uh, and so combination of cash and stock will lead to consolidations. And we're, we're never turned off if a company says to us, hey, it's going to cost us $200 million uh, or it might cost us a billion dollars. If we think that what they're doing is going after a $50 billion prize, then we actually think they'll be competitively advantaged because it's just that much harder for other companies to raise money. So uh, it can be a, 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 a net positive. Yeah, let's let's focus on the anti-bubble and consolidation, because I think the bubble part, that's quite obvious. You fund companies that you really believe in, you allocate uh, some room in your fund to continue to fund them, even if capital is scarce. But the anti-bubble, the special situations, that's that's somewhat different from what other venture capitalists are doing. Is this something that we didn't see a lot of over the last decade? And also, if you can kind of describe a deal that you would consider to, you know, deal that you did out of luck that you would consider to be an anti-mobile or a special situations deal. Well, one special situation, which I think is sort of interesting, goes back to um, a company called Luxterra. I want to say that the post money, when we first looked at this company, we were not invested, was around $225 million. And Peter Aber, Lux co-founder, myself, some others were looking at it, but it was really Peter-led and he did a phenomenal job. Um, he and NEA uh, and some others came and recapitalized the business because they had funds like August Capital and Seven Rosen, who were phenomenal funds in the prior decade, but the partners had retired. They called in rich. They weren't raising uh, subsequent funds. And so their ability to continue to invest in a company that still had a lot of risk was relatively low. Their LPs weren't providing annex funds, which was a popular thing that you would sort of raise another bit of capital to continue on for another year or two, even though the lifetime of your fund had run out. And so this was a company that was in a situation where it had a good balance sheet, it had a good income statement, it had good cash flow statement. So it as a fundamental business was doing fine, but its cap table was impaired and uh, it needed to raise a little bit of future capital. And so we came in and actually did a pretty aggressive recapitalization. That $225 million post-money valuation went down to $10 million pre. Uh, management was refreshed. 
they were able to get significant equity. They looked and the CEO, Greg Young, did a phenomenal job of looking at the upside and sharing that with his key lieutenants. And uh, that ended up selling to Cisco for $660 million just a few years later. So the rationalization of the valuation to the, to recapitalize it gave it the cash that it would need in the ensuing years. Refresh management, who were feeling a bit fatigued, uh, allowed them to recruit new people and then ultimately have a, a great exit. They were making a component which is critical for last mile fiber optics into data centers and computing. We know that there's long haul fiber optic cables, but they, they came out with this interesting niche and it was still technologically early when they first developed it. It took longer than people thought. It cost more money than people thought. And you know we were able to come in later on in that special situation. So there's examples like that. There's another one where a Freescale Semiconductor, which was Motorola Semi, had a division that we looked at. We had an inside person inside Motorola who used to be a key VP of engineering and technology. And they said, you know, there's this amazing jewel inside of uh, Freescale Semi. And Freescale just got taken private by Carlisle, Blackstone, TPG, some of the big private equity giants. Uh, and if you think about what they do as sort of the Flintstones and what VCs do as sort of the Jetsons, you know, in cartoon parlance, we were the Jetsons. We were willing to take this risk on this crazy little division that was uh, developing non-volatile memory, which was memory that basically did any power and could be used in space and do all kinds of cool stuff. About $200 million had gone into that division, and we were able to spin it out for, I think it was a $20 million pre. Uh, I think we got 50 people, 300 patents, $20 million of fully depreciated capital equipment, if memory serves right. Peter also had, uh, Lux co-founder, had, had led this one. And ultimately, we took a public some years later. So if you can really understand fundamentals of a business and uh, what assets are there, what liabilities are there, the cash needs that it has, and you know, basically think of it almost like a poker game. You know, do you have a large enough chip stack to be able to, you know, see the the next few cards flip over and and ante up? Then uh, you know, you you stand the chance to collect the pot. And so uh, we, we like this. Do you see many of such opportunities now? Are are you seeing many opportunities where companies are ready to recap or, I mean, there, there's still a bit of dry powder in the market and you would think that they would still be going to their original investors and asking for extensions and whatnot, rather than doing this, which is a fairly dire situation. It is uh, and it isn't. So the short answer is no, I think we're still early in the cycle. And, you know, just like somebody that suffers um, a loss of a, a loved one or some bad news, you know, we psychologically go through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, the sort of, you know, clinical textbook examples of the five stages of grieving. I think some people are still in denial. I think some people have gone from denial and anger to bargaining. I don't know that depression and acceptance have, has, has uh, hit. Now, of course, the entrepreneur by default, and many investors by default are are bullish, you know, and 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 look past the negative and believe that, you know, things are going to be great and things are going to be positive. But but it's good to be a prag a pragmatist and a realist in in tough situations. And it's the kind of thing that can inspire leadership, loyalty, people, you know, not thinking that you're delusional, uh, employees saying, Oh man, you know, they just don't get it. Uh, and sticking around because they believe like, okay, look, we're in a tough situation, you know, we're in a sector where we've got headwinds, people are cutting their budgets you know, our public comps are down significantly, all, all that kind of stuff can can affect morale. So I think that you're right that the first step is people will do extensions of rounds. The next step is people will give positive inducements to existing investors to participate. So that might be some warrants or an equity kicker, some sort of liquidation preference that increases, but it doesn't negatively punish the non-participating investors, that would come next. And then you have pay-to-plays and the return of structure that not only rewards 
participating investors, but sort of punishes uh, and disincentivizes non-participating investors from not participating. Uh, and there's consequences for that. So the carrot and the stick. And then I think eventually you get full recapitalization. So now that doesn't happen in mass across the board. There will be idiosyncratic company by company, depending on what their situation is. Uh, and that's really, you know, the uniqueness of this is that in this crazy, chaotic, volatile market moment that will probably last for about two years, it isn't like everything is suddenly going to be recapitalized. Just a few companies will be. It isn't like everything is going to raise extensions around. Some will, some won't. And it isn't like some companies aren't going to raise phenomenal, impressive up rounds or even go public. So it's really time to start discriminating between the haves and the have nots, the good companies and the bad ones. And ultimately, uh, you'll see which investors are really wise and which ones, you know, we're just sort of following the herd and benefiting from a go-go momentum year or set of years. Along with a few veteran VCs, you've been very vocal about overvaluation in the tech market. The air has obviously come out of the tires this year. You've also said that you think that this is very similar to the dot-com bust. However, we still haven't had many companies go out of business. There are layoffs, but most people who are losing jobs in the tech sector are able to find jobs in other, in other tech companies. Do you think that this downturn is like the dot-com bust? So you describe me as a venture veteran, which means that, you know, a veteran's been through a tour before of this kind of stuff. And in fact, that is my reference case, which, you know, you go back 20 years. Um, I don't know if it's correct. I don't know what the future will hold, but we look for analogies. We look for patterns. Uh, sometimes like somebody seeing, a, you know, Jesus in toast or a face in the clouds, they're not there. But the patterns that I see are, in fact, March of 2000 into Q3 of 2000. You had a surprise decline in the persistence of momentum in equity prices, and suddenly something changed. Some of the poster children that were widely celebrated as being great investors suddenly became pariahs. They obviously weren't, you know, that smart beforehand. They're not that dumb now. It's just, you know, a lot of attention was given to these folks. From Q3 of 2000, you had range-bound markets that lasted for two years. What I mean by range-bound markets are markets that would give you these 1% to 2% daily moves, high volatility uh, across the entire index. You would see some companies that would be up 5%, 10 20%, and then down 5 10 20%. And if you think about why prices are moving up and down like that, it's the nature of the composition of the investor base that's changing. You have a very significant passive indexation participation of investors that compose a lot of the holdings. I think you will, re you will see a return as we did back then from 2002, as that sort of all shook out. You can think about it as like a bouncing ball with each ball bounce being a measure of the volatility of the markets and it was sort of bouncing high, a lot of volatility bounced a little bit lower until it basically was flat. And then you had very low trading and that low trading was a measure of people's sort of despondency, despair, frustration, recognition that the bubble wasn't gonna come back, that buy the dip wasn't going to work in today's parlance, that the Fed put wasn't there. And this is, of course, even maybe worse or exacerbated as you have a global macro and a Fed environment of rising rates. Uh, you had a little bit of that in 99-2000 with Y2K and Greenspan and rate rises that sort of took the punch bowl away. You, of course, saw it in 07, 08, 09 with the credit crisis, but but it, it, it feels probably like that Q3 of 2000. So two years of range-bound markets that really went nowhere. Uh, of course, there were some aberrations. Some companies took off and some companies went bust, but by and large, the market just sort of stayed flat. And then in 2002, two years later, you had the rise of the great celebrated investors who were these long, short hedge fund investors. And they were people who were able to spot great compounding companies that would truly go on to become you know, great lasting businesses still of today. 
uh, and they were able to spot those. And then they were also able to spot the companies that might have had fan followings or retail investors that were basically fads or frauds or technologically obsolescent and would go out of business. And, and many of those did. And so I, I think you have that same phenomenon. The layoffs are real and coming. I think that management always is loath to cut deeper than they ought to. So you see a first wave of layoffs of like five or 10%, maybe 15. And then you see another layoff, you know, round of layoffs, but now it's on a smaller denominator base of employees. So when you really look at it, it's it's closer to something like a 30 or 40% layoff rate. Uh, Snap obviously just laid off 20% of their workforce. You know, that wasn't, th- those people are not rushing out and, and getting jobs. And if they are, you know, if you're in ad sales, maybe you're going to Facebook, but Facebook itself is starting to rationalize. And so some people have hiring freezes. I, I actually just think that uh, you're going to see a culling of the tech workforce. And some of that will be a natural return to the number of participants in it. And, and I think that uh, a lot of the wealth effect that people had over the past few years is going to hit people hard as well, where you were making fine money, you had a lottery ticket and some of the option value that you had, that now is basically worthless and entirely underwater. And if you were speculating in the market, you know, you've lost, you know, somewhere between 20 and 80%, depending on how concentrated you were in some of the tech names. So I actually think the carnage is going to be a little bit harsher, but it will take time for people to really feel it. And, uh, and if that's true, it's natural. It's, it's, uh, it, it sucks. It's painful. Some people will lose money. Some people will gain experience. Uh, and by and large, the tech economy will continue to grow because uh, the detritus, the failures will be the combinatorial fodder for the next wave of entrepreneurs that puts pieces together and says, well, geez, we got, you know, rockets that are cheaper than ever. And we've got internet and telecom that's cheaper than ever. And we've got AWS. And now we're doing this in biotech. And we've got AI and ML models that are open source. And so, uh, you know, there will be endless creative recombination. But I do think that, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of wealth and have to restart from zero. What about M&A? You've, you've been saying that you will see, we will see a lot of M&A this year. So far, the numbers that we're tracking here at PitchBook are not showing a pickup in M&A activity. When do you think we'll, that will start? Well, I think in, in biotech, you're starting to see it already. So, you know, if you look at the publicly traded sector in biotech, you had 800 publicly traded companies, more or less. Half of them had less than two years of cash. A few hundred of them were trading at a negative enterprise value. And uh, I think already you've got, you know, biotech that uh, M&A is picking up pretty significantly. And there's, uh, I don't have the numbers on hand, but, you know, I would, I would reference you guys. But I think the number of deals, the size of them, and whether those are coming from larger biotechs, buying smaller biotechs, pharma buying medium-sized biotechs, uh, biotechs shedding assets and reducing their burn because maybe they were working on 10 different programs. Now they're working on two. What do they do with the other eight? They either divest them, they mothball them, they shut them down or they, you know, they sell them. So yeah, I think, I think sectors like that, that have deep carnage, you know, the XBI, the biotech in, in index down to 60, you know, did it hit a bottom? Maybe does it bounce along for a while? I don't know. But I, I do think that you know, I've been in these boardrooms and I know that some of these boardroom conversations are, we had 10 programs, we don't have the money, we can't raise more, we got to cut. And so what happens when you cut is you try to sell stuff to recognize some value. So I, I, I do think that there will pick up asset sales and, and M&A, uh, particularly in biotech first. I think you'll probably see it in software next. Again, anything where multiple contraction has happened significantly it allows a buyer to relook and say, there's no way we would have spent, you know, 40 times, uh, you know, forward revenue, but now it's trading at nine times forward revenue. Okay. It's a lot more interesting. So. Yeah. So let's turn to science and technology. Since 
Science technology is not always developed the way you expect. I'm wondering what potential technological innovation you were most excited about 10 years ago, and did they deliver on their promise? Well, this requires me to have an accurate recollection uh, and probably need technology for that of, of what I thought was going to be amazing 10 years ago. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, let me go back even further to fall on, on my sword, which is the area that I was most excited about when we were first starting Lux was advanced materials and particularly nanotechnology, which itself was a, a broad catch-all buzzword for innovations at the nanoscale that were happening in chemistry and material science. And a lot of it was rebranded you know, to sort of capture the cachet and the hype and the buzz around it. But that was an area where I thought everything from carbon nanotubes and buckyballs and fullerenes to uh, silicon nanowires, that that, that was going to usher in a wave of innovation. And in many ways, it did. Uh, a lot of the things that we see now in cell phones from Indian tin oxide that's used for transparent touchscreens that we now take for granted, things in fabrics and clothing, things in OLEDs that are used in displays, a lot of that did materialize. It just took so much more time and money than even we had forecast at the time. So I would say directionally right, but wrong in terms of timing. Another area that I became very bullish on probably a decade ago, and I think we nailed the theme and the way to play it. I'm still bullish about it now, although we're not actively investing in it because it is something that is not um, shying us away because it's capital intensive, but because of the regulatory risk. And that's nuclear. Over the years, rebranded it to elemental power, something I'm quite bullish on. If you truly are an environmentalist, you ought to care about the environment. And the best way to have very large zero carbon baseload power is nuclear energy. We've got decades of safe reactors. Uh, We have a handful of Accidents often driven by human chains of decisions in the case of Chernobyl, an earthquake, a tsunami in the case of Fukushima, where we played an active role through a company that we founded called Curion to help with the cleanup efforts, removing the radioactive cesium, strontium, technetium, uranium, plutonium from the waste streams that were coming when the government dumped hundreds of millions of gallons of uh, seawater onto the reactors to prevent a, mel- a meltdown. And then, you know, things like 1979, Three Mile Island, which was basically a proof that engineer fail-safe systems work. And there wasn't really a nuclear disaster, but it happened to coincide with the China Syndrome, which was a popular movie. It happened to coincide with the anti-nuclear war movement and the sort of peacenik movement. And so all these things got conflated. Nuclear lost a terrible branding initiative and uh, a lot of support, unfortunately, from uh, Greenpeace and other people that were like, no nukes. Now, you have the former heads of Greenpeace that are calling for, my gosh, if you actually want to save the environment, you need nuclear. So nuclear is something that we are very bullish on. The particular thing that we decided to focus on then was waste and what do you do with the waste and how do you clean it up? And then we frankly got lucky when Japan got unlucky with the Fukushima disaster and the technology and the team that we had assembled in this company, Curion, sort of had their life calling and and rose to the occasion. And it was a great financial and, and moral and and qualitative success. So I was very happy about that. Today, probably the technology that I'm most excited about is something that I've been on a decade-long quest for. So again, you have to discount a little bit the bias that I have that I've been looking for so long and kissed a lot of frogs and found a lot of entrepreneurs that weren't backable or a lot of science that wasn't differentiated. But we finally did find something now. Uh, we funded it along with some great investors. It'll come out of stealth in the next month. But uh, it is for digital olfaction, which is you know the devices that we carry can capture sight and sound and uh, you can do high speed time lapse, uh, 4K, high def video. You can capture perfect stereo audio. Uh, you can't capture smell uh, until now. And the ability to give computers a sense of smell, which allows you to do everything from have a Shazam for smell. You walk into a room or you have a meal where you're capturing a moment, the smell of a loved one's hair, the nostalgia of an old family home, whatever it might be, to be able to capture and record that. 
the ability to detect human health from breath, that's COVID, cancer, epilepsy, Parkinson's, all kinds of stuff where we know that dogs can smell these things. And then industrial and defense applications, whether it's detecting electrical fires or other off gases that you might want, um, huge application for that. So that's something that never existed before. And the why now is really less about the sensors, which continue to evolve, but more about the graph neural nets and the AI that has trained on so many different smells and can now predict uh, when it encounters a molecule what it is. That is very exciting because I know you've been in the search for this company for some time. So it sounds like it's coming out of stealth very soon. And we're, we're definitely looking forward to covering that. Uh, what about gene sequencing in CRISPR? Uh, some scientists say that it's underdelivered on its promise so far. What do you think? Um, well, uh, under-delivered uh, under on its promise in that uh, you really only have one or two drugs that are, you know, gene therapies that um, have really hit the market. Uh, Spark Therapeutics was one. But I would say that it's more criticism that we get overexcited about things in the short term and then, you know, historically tend to underestimate them in the long term. We have another company that's going to be coming out of stealth that takes one of the co-discoverers of CRISPR and uh, his work and uh, pairs it with an incredible suite of delivery technologies, which is really the biggest problem that has held back CRISPR, which is how do you do targeted delivery of gene therapy to a specific organ or even a specific cell? And that has been very hard. And I think that this team now has figured that out. The way that they figured it out itself is a mind-blowing story, but we'll save that for another time. But I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic about it. The ability for us, when you think about even the pandemic, to go from having a unknown illness to sequencing the nature of that virus to discovering and synthetically creating multiple forms of messenger RNA vaccines, really in the course, even though it took many months to a year for the full distribution of it, but the matter of days and weeks is just absolutely stunning validation of human ingenuity and achievement and the compounding nature of all these things that have been, you know, two decades plus since the human, human genome project's existence. So I, I am very bullish about gene therapy, genetic editing, some of the computational approaches to be able to search through the genome, identify proteins of interest, look at protein-protein interactions, look at the molecular glues that can help to bind them, look at the ion channels that in some cases, because of mutations, create everything from conditions like cystic fibrosis to potentially Parkinson's. So, so those are all areas where we're actively investing. And I see true geniuses looking at the structure of biology, the underlying genetics, the code that is in our genes and computational approaches to discover drugs. So I, I'm, I'm super bullish. Do you feel that meaningful technical innovation is slowing down? Like last century, we've had some huge breakthroughs and mass-produced cars, commercial air travel, refrigeration. Those inventions made a meaningful, a huge improvement in the lives of people, in people's lives. Now that's slowing down. We're not having such huge breakthroughs that really improve the quality of life. Do you agree with that? Disagree? What are your thoughts? No, I, I disagree. You know, you have the um, the Robert Gordon view that some of these innovations were the most. It, 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 the short answer is it's because those past things are observable. In a sense, you can almost exaggeratively say it's sort of like looking at the music of, you know, anybody of a given age's uh, period from 16 to 24 of their life, where they would say, oh, you know, current music just sucks compared to the old music. And, and of course, it's a very visceral feel. Of course, you know, toilets and air conditioning were absolute game changers. But 
look at what happened during the pandemic. Our ability to take for granted the fiber optic cables that went around the world globally that really cost anybody you know, virtually nothing. The ability to have compression algorithms that allowed us to do video conferencing. Like in, in 20 years, we will look back and say, you know, there hasn't been anything like the fiber optic cables and the compression algorithms that allowed the entire world to compress ourselves from three dimensions into two dimensions and, you know, avoid talking. And, and I mean, it's just to me, it's astounding how the near term innovations are overlooked. We were just talking about the vaccines and the ability that in history, the fastest that humans ever came up with a vaccine was Ebola. And I think that was five and a half years. But the ability to vaccinate a significant portion of the world is just astounding in the speed in which we did it. And not only from the discovery of, again, the sequences, but the manufacturing and the conditions therein. And so I, I, I just uh, reject the premise that the uh, rate of innovation is somehow slowing. What What is changing, and it is observable, and I think this is a good thing, is that, of course, 200 years ago, and this is almost evidence for my point, a single person might have been able to know, you know, much of what was really important to know on the cutting edge. As people became more and more specialized over time, as the boundary of what is not known uh, or what is known keeps expanding, it also reveals, and I always like to say this about Lux, Lux itself is Latin for light, you shine a spotlight. Anytime you look at a spotlight in the dark, the circumference of that light is all the unknown. And as that spotlight grows and that circumference grows, so too does your awareness of what's not known. That has led to specialization. Instead of somebody being in a biology department, now you have statistical biology, you have biochemistry, you have uh, computational bio, uh, you have biomechanics. Uh, the, the increased specialization means that you have all these interdisciplinary groups. And that is often where we find the biggest innovations, where the computer science department was never talking to the biology department. Now you have entire buildings that are newly endowed that are the interface between computer science and biology. Same thing with material science and computer science. You have aerospace and the entire space economy launching satellites that can not only stream down our Sirius XM satellite radio, but TV and content and take pictures and reveal truths on the earth, whether they're migratory crises or geopolitical uh, preparations, as we saw in the case of Russia, as reported by some of Lux companies. I, I just truly believe that innovation continues to compound, that it's easy for us to oversee and take for granted all the technologies that we see around us. We tend not to notice them until they break. And I just think that the endless frontier of combinatorial possi possibilities uh, is going to increase. I'll give you another example, which is all the things that start out trivial, like a depth sensing camera that's used by an Xbox or a PS4 for just dance or, you know, uh, Dance Dance Revolution, uh, which my kids play, can detect their body movements and whether or not they're in choreography sync with, with a, a, a hit song. Some genius came along and said, well, what if I took that capability, those 3D depth sensing cameras, and put them into a rapidly turning uh, camera that could do one of two things? It could uh, statically capture an entire room or physical space and scan it. So people talk about the metaverse, but the ability to take physical objects or lived spaces and rapidly scan them and capture them digitally is really important. If you spin something like that at a much faster frequency, you get LIDAR and now you can get effectively range finding radar for autonomous vehicles. All of these things compound and they're beforehand never predictable. Same thing in gaming, the GPUs that were allowing for graphics innovations, you know, as we ever increased in Zelda from, you know, small pixel pitfall that you played on, uh, you know, pre uh, Nintendo to, uh, you know, cutting edge PS4 of today, 
those GPUs became the new soul of the machine for all the AI and machine learning uh, researchers who are doing all the things now like mid-journey and stability diffusion and Dolly that are able to take gigabytes of known artists and then synthesize that body of work into algorithms that with a simple text prompt can generate anything that your mind can literally imagine. I mean, that is just mind blowing. Now you take that and you start to apply it to scientific research, you know, literature, video. I just really feel like the the possibilities are endless and inspiring. You mentioned Russia and the war in Ukraine. You, You were one of the few VCs that have been investing in defense companies. Do you, are you seeing more interest in that from other firms? And what are your thoughts? We are. Us and a handful of other firms have been relatively early investors in companies like Andrel, Saildrone, Clarify, uh, Varda, Hadrian, that are either manufacturing what we would consider the arsenal of democracy, the return of the quote-unquote freedoms forge, the tools, technologies, hardware, software that either are manufacturing key components of aerospace and defense, manufacturing satellites, manufacturing drones, or creating entirely new paradigms for defense that people historically did not want to work on. When I say historically, I really mean the past generation. Really since the early 2000s, you had a movement of people that felt it was sort of taboo. They didn't want to work for the Pentagon. They didn't want to work on cutting edge technology. And we've warned for a while, the world is a dangerous place. Why would you not, especially if you spend time with some of the brilliant women and men on the front lines in all branches of our military, why would you not want to equip them with the best technology? And we actually felt it was a moral good to make sure that the United States, which I truly believe defends the the best of our liberal democratic values, although it, again, in the short term, it feels at times like that's being a fabric that's ripped apart by various forces. Uh, and so we got long and loud about uh, many of these companies that in every stratosphere of the earth from space, air, land, sea, software, cyber are all, you know, in our view, fighting the good fight. And we believe it's a moral good that you can reduce human suffering by inventing uh, and investing in technologies that can deter war. And, and yeah, in- increasingly, you're seeing people not only investors, but more importantly, investors are looking at the signal of where smart people want to go. And smart people increasingly don't want to just, you know, work at Facebook reinventing, you know, ads or working on Google for search. They want to work on really important mission critical stuff. And when you see a revanchist Russia or uh, uh, increasingly bellicose China, uh, particularly the CCP, I think people see that there's a long-term mission calling here and, and it's inspiring a lot of folks. What opportunities are there for startups from the two recent pieces of legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIP Act? I I am very skeptical about both. I think um, the CHIP Act is going to effectively help to subsidize some old guard uh, Silicon Valley companies like Intel that uh, are themselves through business model shifts. I sort of prophecy predicted or forecast some time ago that Intel would effectively become like TSMC. Now, that's a good thing for domestic security for us to be able to have our own foundries that can produce chips that are mission critical. But Intel is not necessarily at the forefront or the vanguard of making the most important chips. Historically, for PCs and servers, they've lost the mobile race to ARM. They've lost the GPU race to NVIDIA. And so I see a, a resurgence of new cutting edge chip companies that are basically going to change the economics of how you manufacture this stuff, not requiring class 100 or class 1000 clean rooms, but coming up with new design architectures that flip a whole generation of semiconductor manufacturing on its head, flip chips, chiplets, all kinds of interesting new techniques. So I I think that 
if anything, you know, tax incentives money should be going to the new companies. I understand the geopolitical will and the support to sort of quote unquote shore up the demand and the tense of capex that is in accordance with Rock's law, which is the parallel to Moore's law. Moore's law, more chips, you know, for every dollar, every year and a half. Uh, Rock's law, insanely expensive every two years and more so to build another fab that can get us to the next uh, sub twenty nanometer node. But but I I think most of it will be wasted money, unfortunately, going to some of the big, you know, old school semiconductor companies. On the Inflation Reduction Act, I have a view here. We have a view at Lux, which we've called biflation. And um, I don't see government intervention here helping. I see it actually exacerbating. It historically always has. The Fed itself, I think, waited too long to raise rates, and I think they're raising them too far now. I'm not saying that because I want them to lower them so that equities can be speculative high. I think they've taken some, if not most, of the speculative excess out of the equity markets, which is good. But rising rates hurt the poorest the most. And I've called this sort of the treadmill class uh, economy, by which I mean there's wealthy people who have Pelotons in their homes and can afford treadmill classes and go to Barry's boot camp and all that. And there's poor people who are quite literally on, uh, figuratively, on a treadmill. And the job numbers that you see that are going up are people that have to go back to work because their, you know, Robinhood accounts or their crypto accounts that they were speculating on the side are are busted and, and they need to make ends meet at a time when you have consumer staples uh, that they need uh, rising in price, uh, affordability of their stuff declining in price, interest rates rising. Most people don't have $400, $600 uh, in savings to hit a medical emergency. And so they're in a really tough bind. And, and, and you're raising rates and the cost of capital and the availability of it and the liquidity that people need at the worst time. I mean, interest rates north of 20% for credit card. I mean, it's just, I, I think that's a tragedy. Then you have the other end of the spectrum. So, so that's all inflationary on prices and must have things and the affordability is going down. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have declining prices for all the consumer discretionary stuff, which again, are like the Pelotons and the Nikes and the Under Armors and all the stuff that people pulled forward, both in fashion and retail and turning their homes during COVID into three-star hotels, you know, with spas and everything. And you don't need any of that stuff anymore. And, and, and you, you pulled three, four years of demand forward. So I see this biflation between the upper middle class and the wealthy who actually see declining prices and the poor who are actually seeing rising prices. And the Fed is basically trying to land this plane, so to speak. But I think they're hurting the worst, the worst. And um, I think it's a shame. And I think this Inflation Reduction Act is, is just going to create all kinds of unintended consequences like the government always has. Speaking of regulation, uh, Congress has shown themselves to be behind the curve in the past, most famously during Mark Zuckerberg's testimony in 2018. Is there lack of oversight beneficial for technology as a whole? Or would we be better off if they were on top of regulating these industries? I think when it comes to regulation, the government, uh, and this includes both the SEC and Congress, are sort of always involved in the autopsy, not the diagnosis. Meaning after people have lost money, after people have suffered, you know, then they come in as sort of the police to slap somebody's wrist. By the time that has happened, you know, it's sort of too late on the public market side or the investor side for the SEC. And on the congressional side, the interventions, when you look at the history of monopolies, every time the DOJ knocks on a door and basically says, we're going to go after you, whether that was Microsoft in 2000, Google on uh, search, you know, in sort of 2010 time period, Facebook more recently, there's always a competitor that through the free market and entrepreneurial ambition and investor greed 
is funding the very thing that will basically undermine the monopoly itself. So, you know, Microsoft in late 90s, early 2000, when Joel Klein was going after, you know, Microsoft for bundling and unfair practices and Netscape browser and Microsoft Office and all that, like they didn't anticipate Google. And then Google is rising and Google didn't really anticipate Facebook. And now Facebook is rising and people are lambasting it. But Facebook has already done its own damage. You know, it, it, most of its products lack the one essential feature, which is trust. Very few people trust Facebook. A lot of people trust Apple. And so I think that there will be a set of emerging competitors and certainly a dominant one that comes that is a greater regulator and a natural one to Facebook, uh, which is some as yet unknown competition, but they will get disrupted not by the DOJ uh, or by Congress regulation, but by the ambition of some other entrepreneur that's like, Facebook sucks and we're going to come up with a better version. Same thing like Zuck's metaverse sucks and we're going to come up with a better version. And so rather than look at their current dominance and the size of their scale, I'd be looking at who's the motivated, you know, entrepreneur that's like, I'm going to take those guys down. And that's what I would be betting on more so than a bunch of theatrical, you know, lawyers trying to, I think that kind of stuff mattered far more, you know, before the 1980s, before venture capital industry, before you had sort of industrialized greed that could back entrepreneurs' ambition. And now that we have that, I think you need to let the free market do its thing and let creative destruction happen. And uh, I think we'll be better off. But yeah, I'm, 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 I'm long creative destruction and entrepreneurial ambition taking down Zuckerberg and Facebook faster than you know the DOJ will. Right. Before I let you go, I'm wondering if you can suggest a new emerging tech area for PitchBook to cover. We have a team, it's a handful of analysts who cover emerging tech areas broadly. There is an analyst focused on healthcare, one on AIML, one on climate tech, one on mobility, and one who covers fintech and crypto. I'm wondering what would be, what you think is the next area of innovation that we should focus on broadly? Well, I think the the sort of um, biotech and tech bio intersections are really important. So, uh, you know, beyond healthcare, I think the intersection of computer science, AI, and ML and biotech is really exciting for us. We have a lot of investments in growing. Another area that I think is really important and interesting is what I call the tech of science. So just like you have the hard power piece of defense, which is you know directly focused on hardware and software for military use, there's a soft power piece on the global stage. And soft power comes when you win Nobel Prizes and you win Nobel Prizes by having cutting edge instruments. And there are a lot of smart engineers at multidisciplinary intersection of optics and lasers and AI and software and ML and imaging that are doing just incredible sci-fi-like work to uh, provide tools to scientists to make new discoveries. So I think that entire domain of lab automation, cutting-edge instruments, scientific tools, the software that is allowing scientists to both run their labs efficiently and uh, make predictions from AI and generate new hypotheses, I see tremendous uh, innovation and sort of a revolution of affairs there. Thank you, Josh. We really enjoyed speaking with you today. Great pleasure. Thank you. Welcome to our segment of the program that we're calling Game Changers, where we'll explore how the best revenue leaders have transformed their company's growth trajectory. I'm your host, Karen Singh, partner and leader of the Revenue Excellence Function at Sapphire Ventures. Joining me today is Ryan Butler, Head of Corporate Strategy and Execution at Procore. Ryan, great to have you on. 
Thanks, Curran. Nice to be here. Amazing. So, Ryan, let's dive right into it. I always like to start by learning a little bit about our guests. And I know a little bit about Procore. I was at Procore for some time, too. And it's funny, every organization has its superpowers. I would make the argument, and I'll contend this to anyone who asks me, that our corporate strategy organization is our superpower at Procore. It has aligned the organization incredibly. So, that is a, has a lot to do with you, Ryan. With that, I want to hear a little bit about your background, not necessarily just your baseball card, where you've been, but I like to hear about your big aha moment. I think my big aha moment came a couple of years ago as I was looking at alignment across our organization. And that's that's supposed to be my job is aligning different functions and all pushing everybody in the same direction. And I, I noticed that we didn't really have alignment in terms of where we were going from our sales strategy and how that flowed back into our product strategy and the rest of the organization. So I think my big aha was, how do we start to bring those uh, those two organizations or those two strategies together into one and actually be going after the, the same goal? Got it. So that alignment being at sort of the undercurrent of everything we do. I like that. And I, I do recall that being a game changer. So uh, at the risk of guessing... I'm going to ask you, what is that big game changer you've had and done and led as an organization? We ran a project that we called Unlock the Box uh, back at the time, where basically we we started with a pretty basic market segmentation and, and total addressable market or TAM exercise, and actually tried to figure out how to use that to size the different opportunities that Procore could go after and really start to focus everybody on what mattered most first, next, and last and what was needed to drive success over what time frame, and really got very tight on what were we going after now and how is that going to contribute to Procore's success in the next quarter and year? And then what do we need to be doing now to contribute to the success that we wanted to have in the out years? And that project really became the basis of what we think about as our, our strategy and our planning process today. Let me counter that a little bit for you, because I, I do agree. I think having that alignment is really important. But whenever I sit next to, say, a revenue leader, a sales leader, more often than not, whether it's right or wrong, they're going to sit there and say, hey, I know exactly where to go, what to do, how to go do it. And I just need support to be able to go execute, right? Most of us fancy ourselves armchair strategists anyways. Let's talk about Procore in particular. What made the organization look around and say, hey, we actually need this? versus what we were doing already. The way that you go about doing this and not coming from like an ivory tower mentality of, hey, I'm not the one closing the deal or I'm not the one building the product, but like, here's what I think. And, and it really has to be a collaborative project together to all agree on those things. And I think everybody has a great sense of the individual parts of what they can see as being important. And then it's really like, how do we agree on those things and put them together? But I think the biggest the aha moment was basically... Procore is a very sales-led company at this time. And so we were growing very rapidly and the sales strategy that we had was working, but it was starting to show strains on the rest of the organization, meaning the sales leaders were out there and they, you know, they were closing, you know, an amazing number of deals in different markets in different countries and really growing the basis of the business. But we started to see many different types of customer requests come in from the, the deals that we were closing or had closed and you know many different strange on, uh, strains on our GNA organizations to be able to support those different markets. And we started to run into this problem of what was most important. I know our CRO at Procore used to say this, which I liked, was uh, most companies die of indigestion, not starvation. And I think there was a little bit of indigestion happening. 
So you're right. Revenue absolves all sins. But, you know, if you look under the hood, there's more there. And if you can get in front of it before you hit those macro headwinds or growth pain, uh, pain points, things like that. I mean, it's, it's incredibly meaningful. It helps you keep that trajectory going. So with that, obviously, we're not just going to talk about the theory of alignment. Let's talk about how we actually do it. And again, you are one of the best when it comes to executing and being really sequential and thoughtful about what we do, like you said, first, second, last. So give me a sense, Ryan, walk me through that journey. The first thing that we actually had to do was agree on our segmentation and the opportunity size of, of that. And it sounds incredibly basic, I'm sure, but at Procore and at every company that I've ever worked at, segmentation can get pretty complex when you get down in the details. And so for us, it's, it's kind of this Rubik's Cube of geographic location, type of construction company, so general contractor, owner, specialty contractor, trade contractor, size of the company, and then product as, as you know the type of product they want or, or where they play in the construction life cycle is like another way that we had looked at segmentation. And so the first problem statement was essentially everyone talked about the segments differently and didn't actually understand how they came together and what were the what were the different sizes of those different opportunities. And so the very first step was just coming up with a segmentation framework that was common across the company that we could all agree and speak the same language to each other. And then we actually had to kind of run an opportunity sizing project on, on the back of that to go out and say, okay, what was the addressable market opportunity? Makes sense. And I think whenever I advise companies, I see a lot of them having that long range model, that Tam Sam Som assessment. Inevitably, though, getting your sellers to look at it or your revenue org to look at it and say, yeah, I believe that, that tends to be hard, especially when data is such a challenge when it comes to getting this thing dialed in. So I'm curious, as you went through and sort of set the stage on what that segmented TAM is, did you involve your sellers in that process? I'm a big believer that the field has to be involved in, in all of the strategy that you do. So your customer has to be involved in any sort of strategy is only as good as how well you understand the customer and the people who typically understand the customer the best is the field. And so you have to have them as part of any sort of project like this that you're doing and they have to be a feedback loop. Now, you have to do it in a thoughtful way because the field has more important things to do than, than some of these theoretical projects that you're trying to drive or at least at the time theoretical. And so we had to be thoughtful about it. But the way that we did it is we actually use our sales engineers as our counterparts in, in some of this to partner with us as like our feedback loop into this and then our our testing ground for what, what made sense to them and what didn't. Yeah, I love that. You have to be mindful about how much you ask to, but if you don't bring them along, it can be really painful later on. So you went through that exercise, you defined a segmented TAM, you went through and socialized it along the way, got progressively better over time with it. What was next? Yeah, now we had to understand what was different about each segment. And so like once you can understand the opportunity size, the next question is basically what would it take to go win that opportunity? And so our thought process in doing that was first to set a baseline. We had a customer type, one of those segments that we had been focused on for a while and had had great success at at Procore. And so our first step was let's go back and kind of retrospectively say we weren't in this segment and look at what does that segment need? What would it take to win that segment, even though we had many of those things at that time? But what were all of the key go-to-market needs that we had that contributed to our success? What were the core product needs that were more and less valuable to that market? Anything that we needed to support product and go-to-market from an operational standpoint? So 
what was that basic needs checklist for a market that we knew very well? And that then became our baseline. Once we had a baseline of saying like, hey, this is a framework for understanding what it took to win one segment, one market that we knew very well, we then went and ran a research project, again, involving our sales team and our product team together to go systematically look at the different segments within our matrix and say, how is this similar or different to the baseline that we understand? So we're going to a very different type of construction audience. We're going to a very different size of company. There are some common needs that they have. Like if you just take a product perspective, they need very similar things. Their construction process is very similar, but then there are X number of things that are very important to them or differently important to them than the baseline. And how do we start to quantify those differences? You know me, I'm an operator at heart. So I don't think any strategy can actually turn into a plan, into execution until you start talking about KPIs. You start talking about the targets against those KPIs. So effectively, how are you measuring success? The first real indicator is is alignment and how many people that you're meeting with actually are speaking the same language that you're speaking when they're talking about segmentation and at least have the same general knowledge and the same general framework that we're all operating off. The next thing that we did, the next KPI that we focused on was product adoption of this. So the more we felt that we could get product understanding the common needs and understanding the prioritization of the common needs and getting that into the product roadmap, we felt like that we could then more appropriately start to bring the rest of the organization around to where the product was going. Because for us, we want to be led by the strategy that we have that's one, two, three years out. And the more product is ingrained in that, the more they're going in that direction, the more everyone starts to follow. The next thing that we we did was actually work with you directly, Curran, to start to, we ran our revenue planning uh, function among many other functions. And so we started to work with you to think about how can we build in our idea of what we're prioritizing and which markets that we're going after into the revenue plan. Because if we can get targets set on the back of what everybody else says is important, then naturally the rest of the sales organization is going to go after where their targets are at. And so our KPIs then were how well are we baking in what we think is the opportunity size of the markets we're prioritizing into the revenue plan. And then you just have to essentially then you just track the KPIs of the product organization of the revenue organization with the KPIs of this project. And as you start to see some of the product development KPIs fall off, and maybe that's a reason that you need to go and change your strategy. Speaking to a wide audience that is probably trying to do the same things that you've already accomplished here at Procore, and I know you've been on a three, four-year-long journey here with respect to, but what did you learn? What would you do differently? If you got to start over from the beginning, how would you sequence this? The thing that I would, I definitely would do differently is, all of this sounds nice as we're talking in a podcast, but It was a pretty bumpy year and a half until I got to the point where I was getting product to adopt it. And then I was probably another six months after that current before I actually started to be able to work with you to start to get the buy-in to get it into the revenue plan. And so I lost a year basically because I didn't start and get buy-in at the top of the organization down. But we should have started framing the problem statement up to the executive layer, making sure that we all had buy-in that this was a key problem statement, and then started to bring them along in the journey, you know, more effectively. You know, what's interesting about that? In the last couple of podcast episodes I've done as well, one was around growth marketing and ICP. The other one was around value selling. 
completely different topics than this one even. They all had the same commonality on what would you do differently? What would you do better earlier? Which was, hey, I wish I'd pitched earlier. I wish I'd gotten a common, some alignment amongst the organization that this is an important initiative to go after. So it's maybe a learning for all of us as we go down any business transformation key initiative. I don't think we spend enough time early days talking about the why before we jump into the how. I love to finish these conversations with a lightning round. Don't think too hard, just your gut reaction for each. Great leaders pick great companies, Ryan. How did you pressure test that Procore was the company you wanted to go to? The culture and, and the people, like, if I don't see people I think I can work with every day and, and incredibly smart people, then I feel like I'm going to fizzle out in this company and Procore had that in spades. How did you make the transition to leadership and what would you share with others on that journey? I think the transition for me was... How do you go from a doer to a teacher? I'm somebody who likes to get my hands in my new details and likes to get my hands in actually thinking through and kind of like writing out or, or modeling things myself or actually being the one who is the thought leader, developing the thought leadership. And that just doesn't scale. And so I've, I've had to make a transition, you know, some, some would say rocky at times too. Uh, how do you teach other people to do that? Or how do you learn from the way they do it and integrate that into, into what you do? And I think that that transition to teacher has been the biggest thing that I would tell people to focus on. I love that. Biggest misconception about your discipline. I get a lot of like, oh, you're just that guy in the ivory tower that doesn't actually understand how any of this works. You're just a suit, for lack of a better word, that doesn't really understand how to get things done. And I think that can be very true at a lot of different corporate strategy functions. And I just really work with myself and my team to pride ourselves on, on understanding and getting into it with the business and, and really helping to being someone who helps and assists the business rather than someone who antagonizes or tells the business what to do. And so I think the way that we, we combat that misconception is just by rolling up our sleeves and trying to actually be operators with everybody else. Last one, and it's a fun one. If you weren't in corporate strategy, what would you be doing? If money was no object, the thing that I would really want to do is be a stay-at-home dad. I get a lot of joy outside of work from playing with and learning from my seven-year-old daughter. And so I think if, if I could do something else and you know I didn't have to work, that's, that's, what I would, that's what I would be doing. I love it. I think you know me well enough to know that I would be the same with my three little ladies too. Yeah. So we're, we're yeah. one and the same, my friend. <laughs> Right on, Ryan. Really appreciate it, my friend, and great conversation. Glad we were able to have you on the on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm Karen Singh, and this has been the Game Changers Podcast by Sapphire Ventures. To stay up to date with company news and announcements, be sure to follow Sapphire Ventures on LinkedIn and at Sapphire VC on Twitter. To get all the latest trends, best practices, and resources from revenue operations experts for startup growth, subscribe to our RevOps newsletter info.sapphireventures.com forward slash subscribe. All opinions expressed by Sapphire and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions or views of Sapphire Ventures, LLC. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as investment recommendation or otherwise relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Invisible Capital. For show notes and links to relevant reports and articles, 
visit pitchbook.com slash podcast. I'm Alexander Davis. Until next time. Invisible Capital is a production of PitchBook. Executive produced by Kai Yao. Hosted by Alexander Davis. Additional production and editing support by Jen Germain, Allison Sharoni, Brian Hoyson, Finley King, and Sam Steele. Cover art by Landon Early. Subscribe to Invisible Capital on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit pitchbook.com slash podcasts.